this is a brand new series for us, um, but I want, you to let, I want to let you know this is not a brand new series um, overall. This is something that I uh, came across from a couple pastors, um, I don't know, five or six years ago, and um, every now and then pastors come across something like, that's really good. I think I want to use that in my church. So I want to give credit to Bob King and Jeff Mannion. Uh, they were the ones who came up with this. It's not original to us, but we're going to make this um, as much ours as we can, okay? If only you were normal like me. Maybe you've never said it, but you've thought it. Maybe you've never um, said it or thought it like that, but you have said or thought something similar to it. You have um, coworkers, you have uh, family members, um, you married someone that sometimes you go of only they were normal like me, right? You have kids that you think this with all kinds of different ideas of what normal is. And, and what's normal when it comes to driving? I have a pretty good idea of what's normal when it comes to driving, right? Uh, what's normal when it comes <laughs> to loading the dishwasher? I have an idea of what that looks like. Uh, what's normal when it comes to, to spending money, saving money, giving money? What's normal uh, when it comes to attire? What, what's normal when it comes to celebrating holidays? There's all kinds of things out there that we think of that are normal, in our own world. Uh, the first time I remember this, I'm sure it happened before this, but the first time I remember when normals collided was when I was in high school. Uh, we went to, I went to a youth convention in Cincinnati, Ohio. We're still doing that to this day. Um, went to a youth convention in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we, uh, me and my friends, we met a group of girls from New York. And when I say New York, they were from New York. <laughs> you know what I mean, Right? And uh, we just had this 15 to 20 minute conversation, purely platonic. Um, and uh, towards the end of the conversation, one of the girls looked at us and said, where are you guys from? I can't place your accent. And I said, we don't have an accent. You have an accent. Can you not hear what's coming out of your mouth? Right? Like I'm from Oklahoma. Oklahomans don't have accents. New Yorkers have accents. And, and, and again, I walked away going, that girl is not normal. She thinks I have an accent, right? Hey, those of you who are married, do you remember when your normals collided? Okay, toilet paper over or under? Right? It's over. It's always over. It's always over. That's normal, right? Um, how to discipline your kids. There's, there's two different kinds of normals. Where to vacation. Like, we don't have time to list out all the normals that collide when you get married. Uh, one, of the, one of those moments for Jana and I, as, as newlyweds, was whether or not to shut the closet door in our bedroom at night. Okay? So, first home for us was 800 square foot apartment, two bedroom, one bath. Master bedroom was actually pretty big, and it had a walk-in closet. And one of us thought, well, we should just close the closet door at night. The other one thought, our eyes are going to be closed anyway. So why does it matter if it's closed or not? And in the morning, we're going to wake up and we're going to open it anyway. So I think it's kind of dumb to shut the door at night. You notice which side of the argument I was on? It made perfect sense to leave it open. <laughs> and 
I'm, I am so ashamed to admit, but that was a multi-day argument in our, in our marriage. Our normals collided. And when normals collide, sometimes it creates tension in our life. It's, and, and it's not just youth conferences and marriages where this happens. This happens in the church as well. Normals collide in the church. Um, some people like a more formal worship experience. Some people like it more casual, where you can wear chief's gear on Sunday morning. Some people, um, they take, uh, they, they, some traditions take communion every single week. Some traditions take it less often than that. Some immerse when they baptize. Some sprinkle or pour when they baptize. Some people like Sunday school. Some people like small groups, right? Some, some people are a little bit more expressive in their worship when they're raising their hands and the other people in the back are going, why is that guy raising his hand? You can't ask questions during worship, right? <laughs> And that guy's signaling a touchdown. That's weird. Why is he, right? And the people who are more expressive in their worship look at the people with the hands in their pockets going, what's wrong with them? Do they even have a, do they, do they have a pulse? Right? That's not normal. This series is all about what happens when normals collide in the church. What do we do? When normals collide. And we're going to spend the majority of our time, don't turn there, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a city where it just had this crazy amount of diversity. All types of normals, so many normals that Paul had to write them multiple letters to help them navigate when their normals collided. So we're not going to be in 1 Corinthians today. We're actually going to be in Acts chapter 18. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, you want to follow along. Um, Acts 18 records the story of when Paul first went to Corinth. And so I have, I have two goals for today. Number one, I want to introduce you to the city and the people of Corinth, um, the, the diversity, how, what they believed, how they behaved, and how that kind of shapes Paul's response and how Paul starts Jesus' church. And that's the second thing. I just want to show you what Paul did and hopefully find some encouragement from that. So uh, let's start with the city of Corinth. Here's a map of uh, Greece, um, Penel- uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula. Corinth is at the, at, at the part of Greece where there's this, you see this little strip of land, um, which made Corinth kind of a, a hot spot for trade and commerce. Any trade that was coming north from the Roman Empire or Asia down to the south of Greece, where the majority of the population was, they have to go through Corinth. It's the only way to get there. And then they, they also controlled a sea trade route. So um, ships would sail into that harbor, they would unload at Corinth, and then they would walk their shipment, the three to four miles to the other side, they would load another ship and the ship would go from there. It was cheaper to do it that way and it was safer than going around the peninsula. What am I saying to you? I'm saying Corinth had a lot of money. Huge trade depot. Huge, wealthy merchants, wealthy businessmen, bankers um, from all over the world. Would, would ship their materials through Corinth. They would, they would, they would ship them or they would, they would load them there um, and, and they controlled the land route as well as the sea route. So it's full of wealthy people, ton of wealth in Corinth. Secondly, it wasn't just 
um, trade and commerce that made them wealthy. Religion was a lucrative business too. Religion was a huge business. There are ruins um, uh, in Corinth. This is uh, the ruins of Apollo's temple. Um, Apollo was kind of the main god, the main money-making god in Corinth, but that wasn't the only money-making god. There was a temple in Corinth to just about every god because there were people in Corinth from just about everywhere. And they wanted to go to their temple. They wanted to go to their denomination to worship whenever they were in Corinth. So you could find uh, temples to Egyptian gods, Canaanite gods, um, Roman gods, Macedonian gods, Greek gods, all kinds of temples in Corinth. And every temple pretty much worshiped the same way. You take your sacrifice, you take your goat, you take your sheep, you take your ox, you present it there uh, for sacrifice. The temple priests would carve it up um, and they would take that meat straight to the agora, which was the marketplace, and they would sell that meat off. It was an incredibly lucrative uh, business um, in Corinth. It's actually um, the causes of one of the normals that collides in Corinth that we're going to look at in a couple weeks. Um, This is uh, the god Asclepios. Asclepios was the Greek god of healing. And at his temple, what you would do is you would make a clay mold of, okay, say you have arthritis in your arm or you broke your arm. You would make a clay mold of that arm. You would take it to Asclepios' temple. You would lay it there. You would leave it there as a reminder to Asclepios to heal your arm. Okay? Like that would... You, maybe you have a clay mold of the Lombardi trophy here with you this morning and you want God to win, you know, to, God, would you please, you just lay it there. That's a little weird to us, right? But that's what they thought. And then one final God, um, Aphrodite, the God Aphrodite. Now, you've, we've already seen uh, Apollo's temple here um, in the foreground. In the background, you have what's called the Acrocorinth. It's just this big hill. On the top of the Acrocorinth was Aphrodite's temple. Just some of the ruins um, of Aphrodite's temple. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. um, And one of the ways that you would uh, worship or communicate with Aphrodite is you would go to her temple, you would buy the sacred wine, and you would drink it. And then you'd drink some more. And then you'd drink some more. And then you'd drink some more. It's almost like a Super Bowl party. And then you'd drink some more. And you would get drunk. And in your drunken stupor, Aphrodite would communicate with you. Aphrodite would speak to you. So if you're starting a business or you're wanting to know to give your daughter away in marriage to another family, you'd go to her temple. You'd drink the sacred wine. You'd get drunk and she would reveal her will to you. That was normal for a lot of people in Corinth. Um, One other thing fairly unique to the temple of Aphrodite, at its apex, there were over a thousand temple prostitutes working there. And they would descend down that hill at night and they would ply their trade with the sailors, with the merchants, with the businessmen, with all the people that were there staying in Corinth overnight. That was a normal part of worshiping Aphrodite. Which leads us to the third thing that I want you to hear about Corinth. Not only was there abundance of wealth and commerce, not only was there a diversity of religions, but there was terrible debauchery found in this city. 
okay? Um, there was Aphrodite and her temple prostitutes worshiping through sexual activity. Um, and there was the, just, just drunkenness all over the place, the, the, the wealth, the greed that existed, so much so that this was something that was known all throughout the Roman Empire. Corinthiazestai. This was a word used to describe someone who lived a debauched life. They were constantly getting drunk. They were constantly trying to, to, to ply their trade to, to get more money. Throughout the Roman Empire, when you wanted to talk about somebody who was depraved, someone who lived a lewd lifestyle, they were Corinthiazestai. You can see the word Corinth in there. So if you went to a theater and you saw a show, and there was somebody who was just constantly stumbling around drunk. The point was, that character's from Corinth. They were Corinthia Zestai. They were known for being the city, the drunken city, the debauched city, the party city. We've already talked about Asclepios, the god of healing and the clay molds that were left in his temple. Archaeologists have found all the body parts in Corinth, all of them, which has led scholars to believe that STDs ran rampant all throughout Corinth. It's a wealthy city, all types of unique ways of worshiping a diversity of gods, and it was morally depraved. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Which brings us to Acts 18. This is Paul's first encounter in Corinth, okay? Let's go through this. Look at, look, look at this with me. Acts 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So he's going from one major metropolitan city to another. He had no idea what he was getting himself into. Like, there's no internet. There's no travel brochures. There's reputation. There's word of mouth. But he, how many people think he's going to have a difficult time getting the church up and going in Corinth? This is a city with all kinds of money, religious competition, debauchery. He's got his work cut out for him. And starting a new church anywhere is hard work. It is difficult work. And that's what he jumps right into doing when he gets there, a lot of hard work. There, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and work for them. First thing I want you to see, a lot of names, a lot of places, Aquila and Priscilla from Pontus, which was in Asia. They'd moved to Rome in Europe, and Claudius, the emperor of Rome, kicked them out, so they end up in Corinth. So you get a sense of just the diversity, and even the first couple of verses, Asia to Europe to Greece. And what, what was their occupation? Tent makers. What did Paul do? He was a tent maker. So Paul hooks up with Aquila and Priscilla and he starts making tents as a, uh, to, to start this ministry in Corinth. We know from history that Corinth hosted some of the Olympic Games and it wasn't the, it wasn't the top, it was kind of like JV Olympic Games um, every other year. Athletes from across the Roman Empire would descend upon Corinth. Spectators from across the Roman Empire would descend upon Corinth and where would they stay during those games? In tents. Think Woodstock. Think country stampede. Everybody's living in this short little, small little area. So, so tent making is a huge industry. 
in Corinth. And this is what Paul does all week long. And we don't know the rhythm of his week, but I kind of imagine like the first part of his week, he's tanning leather. He's cutting out custom design tents for his customers. During the middle of the week, he's going door to door to drum up business. Towards the end of his week, maybe he's, you know, doing repairs for his repeat customers. We, we have no idea. But during the week, he's a tent maker. We don't know his rhythm for that. We do know his rhythm for Saturday, which would be his Sabbath. Look at verse four. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He's in ministry mode, attempting to build this Jesus community. He's reasoning with them, these, these, these technical, formal debates, attempting to persuade Jewish people who come from one type of background and attempting to persuade Greek people from another type of background to surrender to this Jesus. So Sunday through Friday, he's tent making. Saturday, ministry. Do you know who that reminds me of? A lot of you. A lot of you. You, you spend your week working, your tent making you're doing, you're doing your business, you're plying your trade all week long, and then you carve out a little bit of your Sabbath to be in ministry mode. Don't tell anybody I told you this, but you know you could sleep in on Sunday? Like you could, you could, you could sleep in, you could just show up and just consume if you wanted to. But so many of you decide to carve out a little bit of time to make coffee to disciple kids, to run a soundboard, to play an instrument, to, to, to make people feel welcome. It's absolutely essential in the Jesus community to get it up and going. And, and I don't say this enough, so I just want to say it here. I don't say thank you enough to those of you who do that. You have no idea. I have no idea. I have a little bit better of an idea. You have no idea what your little bit of time and your little bit of effort is doing in the lives of people to, to bring them closer to Jesus. So I just want to say thank you. You should be honored. You should feel honored to do that just like Paul did. He's working during the week and then he takes a little bit of time on the, on the Sabbath to be in ministry mode. And you go, okay, Tim, um, if that whole volunteer thing is the way of doing church work, why do we pay you? Good question. And to protect my honor and my job, let's just keep reading. Verse five. <laughs> when Silas and Timothy, these are partners of Paul's, came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul quits the tent-making thing, and he commits himself full-time exclusively to building Jesus' church in Corinth. You say, how in the world could he afford to do that? We don't know. We don't know. Maybe Silas and Timothy brought an offering from Macedonia, from other churches in Macedonia to help fund the work. Maybe Silas and Timothy got a job that, that, that provided for all three of them. We, we don't know. But however they did that, Paul bags the tent-making job and spends his time full-time exclusively devoted to preaching and testifying that Jesus was the Messiah. And when that happened, 
Anytime somebody commits themselves full time to, to building Jesus' church, it takes off and it starts growing massively, right? No, that's not what happens. Look at the next verse. But when they, talking about the Jewish leaders, opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. He says, you don't want to listen? Okay, I'm done with you. <laughs> your blood's on your own hands. I've, I've said everything I needed to say. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. It's interesting to me. Fruit isn't always the byproduct of going full-time in ministry, but opposition usually is. Opposition is usually the byproduct of someone saying, I'm going all in this. And I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of abuse Paul took, verbal, physical, emotional, but what I just find so interesting, and this, this happens all throughout scripture, it's happened all throughout church history, I've even seen it happen in my own life. When spiritual growth and advancement starts to take off, opposition almost always follows, right behind it. It's, and again, it's not just been my experience. Some of you have experienced this before, but I think it's also a little bit of a warning for us as a church right now. As we think about, as we dream about, as we plan to plant churches and multiply disciples and multiply leaders and what all that looks like, don't be surprised when we face opposition. We have an enemy who does not want us to make progress. You have an enemy who doesn't want you to make progress. He wants to keep you in the dark. He wants to keep you doubting. He wants to keep you when all of the questions in your mind, anytime you start to make spiritual progress, you just need to pay attention for the spiritual opposition that, that, that'll pop up in your world. And that shouldn't, you shouldn't view that as unusual. You shouldn't view that out of the ordinary. I think it's actually quite normal. I would even say expected. Just expect for it to come. We need to understand. Spiritual opposition happens when spiritual growth, progress, acceleration happens. And be ready for it. Paul shakes off the dust from his clothes as a way of saying, I'm not even gonna take your dust with me. He says, their blood's on their own hands. He says, I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. What does that look like? Verse seven. Then Paul left the synagogue and went, where'd he go? Next door. He leaves the synagogue, not exactly on great terms with him, and he goes next door. This is a colossal oversight on the non-compete clause. <laughs> right? Like, he begins his church plant in the shadow of the synagogue. And here's, here's what we're told happens. Crispus, the synagogue leader, the one who's in charge next door, and his entire household believed in the Lord. He converts, his wife converts, his kids, any servants that they have. And many of the Corinthians, the pagan, wine-drinking, prostitute-visiting Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So... People with a Jewish background are joining the Jesus movement in Corinth. People with a Gentile background are starting to join the Jesus movement in Corinth. These are exciting days for Paul and the gang. But can you see normals getting ready to collide? 
Can you see how a Gentile worshiping next to a Jew might be a little bit of a problem for Paul? Look at verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Wait a second. There's traction happening. (laughs) People are getting baptized. Why does God tell Paul not to be afraid? Because he's afraid, right? Paul is afraid. Why is he afraid? Let's visit the last three cities that Paul has been in. Before he came to Corinth, he was in Lystra, where the Jewish leaders didn't like the work he was doing, so they dragged him out of the city, beat him with rocks, and left him there for dead. They thought they were leaving a corpse. Paul's friends found him, nursed him back to health, and they left. From Lystra, they went to the city of Philippi, where the Jesus movement was starting to get get up and running. The Jewish leaders whip Paul 39 times. They beat him with rods and throw him into jail. Once he's released there, he leaves Philippi and goes to Thessalonica, where the Jesus movement is starting to gain some traction as well. A mob forms, a riot breaks out, and Paul and Silas barely escape during the night and make their way to Corinth. When the synagogue leader and his entire household converts, when all those Corinthians were baptized, I think Paul is scared to death because he's thinking to himself, here we go again. (laughs) Here we go again. He knows the opposition and the abuse that's coming against him in Corinth is going to be very similar to what he faced in the last three cities. So God says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. I love this because I have many people in this city. It's it's very similar to what God told Elijah, what God whispered to Elijah when he was having his depressed moment. I've reserved 7,000 other prophets in Israel. He says, listen, Paul, There's work left to be done in this city. And yeah, I know what's happened to you. I've seen it all. I've got plenty of people here to help you. Do not be afraid. Don't give up. Keep speaking. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep teaching people about Jesus. Some of you, you need to hear this today. Do not be afraid. Keep speaking. Keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. God is with you. You're not alone. He's got other people in this city that are there to help. And with that encouragement, Paul, we're told, Paul stays there um, 18 months. And he, he, he teaches, he preaches the word of God. And, and, and God's got his back. Everything is puppies and rainbows from there on out, right? Not so much. Not so much. If you keep reading this chapter, Paul still has some trials to go through. Because again, starting a new church and a new culture in a new town, it's just not easy work. Never has been, never will be. But he sticks to it. Um, and here, here's where I want to land. If you read the entire chapter, you'll start, you just notice a lot of names. You notice a lot of places. Look at this for just a second. In, in 17 verses, there's 10 people. 
There's seven places mentioned. Priscilla and Aquila, Silas, Timothy, Sosthenes, Crispus, Titius, Justus, Gallio, Claudius, from Rome to Athens to Macedonia to Pontus. Do you, do you feel the cosmopolitan feel of Corinth? There's a flavor there. Variety of people from a variety of places, from a variety of backgrounds. And this is only a small percentage of the people that existed there. I mean, Paul was from Tarsus. That's closer to Asia. He was educated in Jerusalem and he's traveled all around the Mediterranean Peninsula by this point. Timothy is from Lystra, but he's traveled from Macedonia to meet up with Paul. Silas traveled from Macedonia, but he's actually from Jerusalem. It's this diverse, multicultural picture of what the church looks like. And, and when, I, when I look at this, like as a church leader today, I, it's, it's beautiful to me. But you know what else? You know the other word that I think of when I see that? Chaotic. It's beautiful, but it's chaotic. You have all these different people with all these different normals, and they're coming together in the same place. And it's like, okay, I got to herd all of these cats in the same direction. How in the world do I do that? Well, that's, that's kind of what Paul's going to show us. I mean, just think, just think about that first worship meeting for them. One person walks in with a clay mold and says, I really need God to heal my arthritis. Another person walks in with a keg. I really need to hear from the Lord today. Like, really need to hear from the Lord today. And, and we think that's absurd, but that was normal for them. That was normal for people. And again, how, how does Paul, how is he going to do with that? How is he going to deal with that? How is he going to guide them? Well, that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. He has to write them this letter to address all the variety, all the diversity that exists in this church. And, and it's not just the ancient church. That's what I want you to hear. It's not just the ancient church that deals with this challenge. It is the modern day church today. Grace Point Church, Topeka, Kansas, 2024. Three services, six to 800 people, some rich, some poor, blended families, single parent families, all types of upbringings, different views on worship, different views on how a church should be run. I mean, we have all kinds of normals that walk in through those doors every single week. In fact, let's just, let's do a little game real quick, okay? How many different churches do you think are represented here at Grace Point? How many different churches? Because some of you, you grew up Baptist, right? But there's, there's American Baptist, Southern Baptist, Missionary Baptist, Northern Baptist, Confessional Baptist, Free Will Baptist, Independent Baptist, Reformed Baptist. I could keep going. Right? Some of you grew up Methodist, some of you grew up United Methodist, some of you grew up Evangelical Methodist, some of you grew up Nazarene, some of you grew up Wesleyan. Like, how many, just think about how many different churches do you think are represented here at Grace Point? So just for fun, like we have a database of, of people that are associated with Grace Point. There's over 2,000 names in that database that are associated with our church in some way, shape, or form. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to turn to the person next to you. 10-second conversation, okay? How many, your best guess on how many different churches are represented here at Grace Point, all right? Take your best guess. 10 seconds, really quick, go. It's your best guess for how many churches? OK, 
Okay, five seconds. All right. Okay. I'm not going to rat them out, but it's Super Bowl Sunday, and I think I saw some money changing hands in the back. What's the the over-under on this, right? Okay, ready for this? Do you want to know how many different churches are represented within Grace Point Church? I gotcha. We have one church because we have one Lord. We have one Savior. We have one Word of God. We have one Spirit who indwells us to to change us into His image. Do we have people from all kinds of backgrounds? Yes. Do we have people with all kinds of ideas of what normal is in church? Yes. But we are one church, Grace Point. And we need to learn how to live like that. Maybe we need to relearn how to live like that. And that's what, that's what we're going to deal with for the next few weeks. Despite our view of normal, we got to learn how to love. We got to learn how to relate to each other coming from our different views of normal. And that takes patience, that takes grace, and that takes a lot of sacrificing for each other. So if you want to learn about patience, if you want to learn about grace, and if you want to learn about sacrificing for the people to your left and your right, to your rear and to your front, I'll see you next week. Have a great week. You're dismissed.